0: I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the
1: Parent Talk Podcast.
0: Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturepedic.com. That's naturepedic.com. Well, Parent Talk wants to... Welcome, everyone, to a very special holiday season podcast. This one is all about young children and the holidays. And we are creating this show right before Thanksgiving of 2022. And, you know, Thanksgiving ushers in a whole holiday season. So we're excited about making this available to our listeners. It's a little different than our usual topic about conflicts with kids and how we uh, help parents help their children solve them. But why don't we start it off? and talk about some of the things that come to mind when we think about young children in the holidays.
1: I was the big holiday maker in my house. I'm the youngest, and so when my mother was older, I took over all of those duties of having the big Thanksgiving dinners. And I will tell you, raising three children and trying to figure out dinner for 20 to 30 people wasn't always... <laughs> So much fun, but you really do learn how to go with the flow a little bit. In fact, I talked with one of my daughters about this before we did this podcast, and she said, I think you could you should tell parents, they have really no expectations and things will go a lot better than you think. Because if you have this idealized form that everyone is going to get along, that the children are going to just seamlessly fit into all of these new schedules, new foods, where they're going to sleep, different people coming in and out then you might be disappointed because it's never, never goes quite as smoothly <laughs> as you would hope. In fact, the new people, that's what I want to start with, Arthur, because uh, one of the things that people coming into the house are going to expect, they haven't perhaps seen your children, maybe they've never seen this child, or maybe it's a grandparent who lives out of town who only sees the child every two or three months. And they come in and what do you think that they expect? What's the first thing that that grandparent or that auntie or uncle wants? A hug. Absolutely. And if your child is probably anything over six months, <laughs> they're not going to be so pleased. A tiny little baby, they're going to go into other people's arms. I'm not suggesting that you pass this baby around like a hot potato. That's not very good for them. It sort of rouses them up. But on the other hand, they're probably not going to cry. But once a child develops stranger anxiety, and that can happen as early as six months, and usually by nine or 10 months, it's firmly established. Any stranger, any person that they have not seen on a regular basis, that child is going to shy away from. Now, inevitably, most <laughs> adults are going to feel like, oh, your kid doesn't like me. Your kid is shy. They're going to put all kinds of labels on it. What are you doing wrong? When it's actually the most wonderful developmental step, it means that your baby's brain is actually functioning just right.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up, Susan. I think the thing that is, as we're thinking about, it, it's the most powerful about these big get-togethers, is, you know, we live inside our own heads, we have our own self, which is a rich thing that we've developed over time as adults. And a a newborn doesn't have that, they're really still part of their mother in many ways, fourth trimester, you know, for those first three months. So that stranger anxiety is really the person's self coming into being. So you're absolutely right, it's this extraordinary step. And when I think about Thanksgiving get togethers, or any other holiday for that matter, what's happening is you're putting a bunch of very strong personalities together in one room who aren't used to being together all day long, every day, day in, day out. They're just coming together for this one special occasion. And so everyone's sort of finding out where their edges are, you know, how they fit together. That's true if you are just a bunch of adults getting together. It takes a little while for people to get a feel for each other and where they're their connections are, and where their boundaries should be, and all that sort of business. So imagine a, let's say, two-year-old walking into a room of 40 adults. First thing they're going to do is the same thing I'm going to do, which is read the room. But I've been reading the room for a lot longer than a two-year-old, and I know how to make myself comfortable. Two-year-old's not even sure yet what it means to be comfortable with anybody who isn't their mom and dad or their sibling or grandparent even. So um I think it's very important that people really enjoy seeing this baby who they saw the last year emerge with a little more complexity in their brain just as you put it so wonderfully they should take some excitement from the fact that their their grandchild their niece their nephew is is emerging is becoming their own person unfortunately a lot of us adults have strong feelings about getting you know hugs from from kids and that, that's really on the grandparent or the aunt and uncle. There's something about their life that's making them feel desperate for a two-year-old to skip all the developmental steps and just run to them, give them a big hug. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're, you're absolutely right. And as you're talking, in my mind, I'm replaying my three children and how they all reacted differently to strangers. My older one was not shy, but reserved. And she was not going to run into anyone's arms. My middle one, She was that unusual two-year-old who thought it was her job to work the room and go to each relative. And my son, my last one was someplace in between. So even within your family, if you had an older child that was more outgoing and wanted to, you know, work the room, That's great. But don't have that same expectation for number two or three or later, because every child is going to have a unique uh, approach to these big family gatherings. But there is one thing I think when you're talking about from going from a baby to a toddler to a preschool age child is that you can help the older child, who especially the child who has some language. Get them a little bit prepared for what's going to happen. Um, you can show them pictures of relatives who are coming. You can talk about how do you greet somebody, and you could even teach a child to put, pull their put their hand out and do a handshake if a hug is is like stepping over the line for them. I mean, there are ways you can talk about helping your child feel a little bit more comfortable. And we're going to talk about preparation for all kinds of things from school to going into the hospital for separations, for vacations or something like divorce. All those things are future podcasts. But I, so, but I just want to say that don't forget that preparing children is a key in many, many, many issues for making them feel comfortable and secure and understanding what's going to happen. Everyone likes to say we're going to surprise children, but really children hate surprises. They really do. They love to be prepared. And if you're, if you're not sure about that, just ask yourself, how many times have you reread Goodnight Moon or any other favorite book? Children love it because they are prepared and they can anticipate what comes next in the end. It doesn't mean that obviously they like to hear new books also, but Keep in mind, surprises, they can be very disorienting for young children.
0: I love that point. I think it's true for adults too. We're more comfortable in settings where we have a sense of how to navigate the situation, like we were talking about our ability to feel more comfortable in a room full of adults, but in all sorts of situations. And you put us into very unfamiliar surroundings. It's stressful. It's difficult. I mean, some surprises are nice, like a birthday present, you don't know what it's going to be. But that's not really surprise in the sense of being thrust into a situation that's very uncomfortable. They know it's a gift.
1: They know it's their birthday <laughs> and they're going to have
0: a present. It's anticipated like crazy. You know, for six months before their birthday, they're all excited about their birthday coming up. And so, yes, I'm going to hear people say kids like surprises. They loved it when they didn't know what their birthday present was. But that's a an event that's in a very highly anticipated, very familiar, very ritualistic actually uh, surrounding. You know, the other thing I think would be helpful to talk about is within a family, kids, young kids will lean towards mother or lean towards father a little more. Parents sometimes can wonder, gee, does my child really love me as much as they should? And it becomes very strong in grandparents. You know, we're both grandparents and we know Mm -hmm. how much we love our grandchildren. And the same goes for parents, how much parents love their children. It's only natural that a parent or grandparent would feel, well, if I love them, like, eight zillion pounds worth of love, why wouldn't they reflect back at least four pounds of love? What's wrong? Something must be wrong. I think that's one of the uh, great features of our conversation about this is that each person has their own subjective experience of the world. And it's different than how much they like you. They're trying to navigate a situation. They may love you like crazy and still hold their parents' knees and be hesitant to run forward and give you a hug. They may warm up under any circumstances, even if they're very happy about things. So I'm going to make a distinction there between how much they react to you and how much they love you, A. And B, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we want to say to grandparents and parents about judging whether their child or grandchild really loves them.
1: And I think that must be one of the hardest things. Certainly it was for me because of my field. I think that it was a little easier for me to take people's comments and say, thank you for your advice, but, Mm -hmm. and and feel pretty comfortable. But I think that most parents, when someone says, what's the, people will say, what's the matter with your kid? Why are they so shy? And make these comments that can really torpedo a parent. And here you are, if you're the host, for instance, and you're trying to, you know, do all the things that a host has to do, and now you have to worry that your child isn't coming up to par, that's pretty difficult. I think the best thing that parents can do is to have some faith in themselves because they know, they understand that their child is acting in a very typical developmental way when they're two and three and not just running into the arms of people. And that sort of brings me to the question of, and this is something that I remember as a child having to kiss great aunties and uncles. Oh my God. I still have like little bit of nightmares about that. I'm not kidding. And, (laughs) And this is one thing that I think you never force your child to kiss uh, an adult. And I think this has something, this has a lot to do, not just with my own personal experience, but we really want to teach children that their bodies are private, that they've got some control over who touches and does things to their bodies. We want them to have a foundation, lay a foundation that they understand that they are able to keep their bodies private and that they have some control over who kisses them or not.
0: Yes, I think it comes down to a matter of respect. Do we respect the personhood of this young child? That can be a difficult concept for you know, older relatives who see them as a little baby still, two, three, four year old. But it happens fast. It happens quickly. You know, soon after uh, nine months of age, uh, self develops, certainly by the time someone's two, three, and four, my goodness their full humanity is in place, and they have just as many feelings and thoughts as we do. And so we don't force each other to do things that we're very uncomfortable doing. Why would we do that to a a full-blown human who happens to be two, three, or four years old? I think, you know, when you talk about preparation, Susan, it's not a bad idea to prepare grandparents and aunties and uncles who we know are going to try to judge how much their grandchild or niece or nephew loves them by how much they hug them and say, you know, your grandchild takes a little while to warm up. And probably the best way to get a hug is actually back off a little, give them some space, be a little playful from a distance and prepare the older folks for that in a nice way. Just like kids, it doesn't work for adults to be too direct and coming at them and saying, don't you dare come and hug your grandchild isn't going to work. But- (laughs) uh, you can say, here's a good path I know works for my child. will get you a hug more sure than any other path. And that's, you know, don't rush in when you first come in. Give them a few minutes to warm up. When you see them warm up, you're much more likely to get that hug.
1: I would say get down to their level. Because first of all, if they're two or three or even four or five, they're a lot shorter than most of the adults. So get down to their level if they can't bend down and sit down. And does this bring back some memories about grandpas who had things in their pockets or grandmas who had candy in their purses? Now, I'm not suggesting they have to have candy. But sometimes if they can sit down quietly and pull something out of their pocket or their purse, it could be anything, a little trinket, a compact with a funny mirror. You know, it could be absolutely anything. I'm not talking about bribing the child with a gift or candy. I'm talking about getting a little bit of common ground there. And if a parent, if an older person or a relative is willing, they're going to see that they're going to make contact with that child much, much more quickly than the person who comes barreling into the room and demands a hug or a kiss.
0: That really speaks to one of our deep themes in parent talk, which is always finding a point of common ground. That that phrase common ground is is vastly powerful, because if you come to anyone and try to do something together in opposition, it's not going to turn out very well. But if you find a point of agreement, what we call common ground, in this case, something that both enjoy, the grandparent and the child, and engage with each other in some sort of play, well, now you're off to the races. Now you're relating with each other and you're having a good time. So I think most of the burden is on the grandparents and aunts and uncles to make this work.
1: Absolutely. This is giving a flood of memories, not just from my own three children, but my memories as a child, because my mother was in a different era and she did put it on the children. Like we had to somehow act in a way that was totally contrary to how we were feeling. And I remember there was a real dissonance there and a real anger and distress. And I tried very hard to avoid that with my children. I'm sure I wasn't 100% successful, but it was like a real conscious decision. And that's what I think we're trying to tell parents. Be prepared for this. Make a conscious decision. Speak to relatives or whoever's coming over. And give them a little bit of a, of, a, of a heads up. And I'm going to tell you, some of them will not take to it, but I would guess that the majority will be grateful to have a plan and they'll know what to do when they meet your child.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. And I also like an idea that you shared with me before, Susan, about uh, as part of the preparation, going through a family album and getting them excited about who they're going to meet
1: yeah, it is because, uh, for instance, my granddaughter here, who's five years old, never met her aunt because she lives she lives abroad, and she finally came in at like right around her fifth birthday. And I will tell you, because we prepared her, it it took no more than about three or four minutes for her to start to talk about Auntie Cecilia. And it was lovely to see. But if we had surprised her, oh, here's the surprise. Here's Auntie Cecilia. I have a feeling that little Molly might have of like, what, <laughs> you know, what, who, <laughs> where did she come from? Yes. Here's another thing that I would like to talk about because I know that this is huge mm-hmm. in parents' head and that is their child's schedule because parents work oh. very, very hard to get children on a schedule that fits into their family, fits into their lifestyle. That means like when they eat, what they eat, where they sleep, how long they sleep, how do they get them to sleep. And I will tell you that some parents are so committed to keeping a schedule that they will be willing to sacrifice their interactions with the family. Maybe they won't go to dinners or other kinds of events at funny hours just so that it fits in with what their child is doing. And if that's really what you need to feel comfortable, then you need to do that. But I just want to give another idea, and that is, is that Most schedules, whether it's, in fact, all schedules for little children are constantly in flux because so many other things other than a holiday visits can interfere with schedules. Think about it. When a child is just learning to pull themselves up in the crib or learning to crawl, we call that a developmental surge, that often interrupts sleep. It's almost like they're practicing the skill in their sleep. And then when they get into that light phase of sleep, it wakes them up because they're excited and they want to try it. How many parents have had the experience of having a child pull themselves up in the crib and then not been able to get themselves to sit down again because they're so excited? And that's what's waking them up in the middle of the night. And eating, children's appetites go, they wane and they wax. So the fact is, is that there are so many factors that can influence a child's eating or sleeping schedules. If you're okay with it, kind of let it go for a three or four day weekend. Let the child be up a little bit later. Let them try different foods. Or if they end up having pumpkin pie for dinner and that's all they have, it's only for a few days. Once the relatives leave, once you get back to your calmer routine, your child will slip back into a good schedule. But if you think you can do it, I think it's just fine to give that a try. Do you agree, Arthur? Is that okay with you too?
0: For sure, Susan. I I love the idea that uh, schedules aren't set in stone. That's certainly true for adults too. I mean, think about some days you eat a lot, some days you eat a little, some days you sleep a lot, some days you sleep a little. You know, the constant harping on eight hours a night of sleep suggests that everyone should, like in a factory assembly line, have a shift of sleep that's eight hours. If you vary from that at all, something terrible is going on. So we're taught in many, many ways that uh, variation is bad. But it turns out variation, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it is. That's how we're built. I think it's fine because that's who we are. You know, illnesses interrupt sleep patterns. That's right. Vacations interrupt sleep patterns. So does Thanksgiving dinner. And everyone does just fine with it. So when you come to Thanksgiving dinner and you worry about, oh, my gosh, you know, we could talk about what happens if you're the host. We could talk about what happens if you're the guest. But I think, you know, a lot of disruption happens when you drive an hour away from home. You get to Thanksgiving dinner around three. By the time you're done, it's nine or ten at night. And your child's bedtime of eight is completely shattered because even if they go to bed at eight, which is unlikely with all the cousins running around. You have to pick them up, put them in the car seat, drive them home, put them back in bed. And so uh, people get worried about that. But uh, we're here to say it works out just fine. It really does.
1: Are there any tips that you can have? You mentioned uh, when you're traveling, like if people are staying at a hotel, any tips for helping a child settle in? or, Or is it really just whatever works in the moment?
0: Well, the thing that makes it tricky, Susan, is that, uh, and people have listened to our podcast on sleep will know that sleep comes in lots of little pieces and they're all different. So there's, you know, light sleep, deep sleep, dream sleep, and we come out of deep sleep up to light sleep and go into dream sleep and two, three, four times a night, all of us decide whether to go back into deep sleep, coming out of dream sleep or wake up. So like, you know, three or four times a night, we have the chance to wake up. And if you fiddle around with your uh, surroundings, like staying in a hotel, you're sort of asking the child when they come out of their dream sleep to sense that something's different, look around and say, hey, wait a minute and wake up. So it's very, very common, even kids who are sleeping through the night, anyone from four months of age through elementary school age, they're going to wake up and, and they're going to say, where am I? You know, it's expensive to get two rooms, but you shouldn't spend the money because even if they're in a different room, they're going to wake up and say, what's going on? So my advice is to anticipate that the child slept through the night so well is going to really disrupt that schedule. And they may actually want to get up several times in the night when you get home. Uh, and that's okay. Don't worry if it's disrupted. Uh, know that even if it goes on for a few nights, they're going to come right back to it if you help them get back to it. But don't be surprised if a hotel's a place where the routines fall apart.
1: We could say to parents then, don't panic, anticipate these wakings, and realize that within a, a week of getting back home, you'll get back into your old routine or a new routine that might even be better.
0: Yeah. And maybe we can wrap up our tour of Thanksgiving dinner with family and young kids with a couple thoughts about what happens if you host. Okay. Because now you're kids know, you to go to bed in their own bedroom, but still, it's, it's sort of its own thing, you know? your child's in their home and all these people are coming in. So like an invasion, how do we, how do we help them feel welcoming?
1: I will tell you that this is something that I think some parents don't anticipate. That even a tiny baby, I'm talking two, three, four months old, will sense a difference in the atmosphere. They'll see parents rushing around. They will know that something different is going on. So again, I'm going to say anticipate that. And one thing that, that if you have a very small baby that can't help you, because even an 18 month old can help bring napkins to the table, carry some, a, a fork and a spoon, they can Be part of it. Anything that you can do to help your child feel part of it is going to help, especially children who love to do art, help them make the centerpieces for Thanksgiving. Nobody doesn't have to look like Martha Stewart for, for it. If your child did it, that will be much more special than anything that you could come up with. But I, I will say that if it's possible, and I always think of this, I used to do all the preparation and people would say, what can I do to help? And you know what I would say to them? I'd say, why don't you come early and watch? my two-year-old when i'm running around doing those last minute things so i don't lose my temper at the two-year-old and the two-year-old feels listened to and cared for so you could ask somebody else to come and just sort of be like a support person you might say for your little one as the dinner or whatever festivities you're planning are getting started
0: i think that's wonderful advice for the uh, young child And then, you know, there's the older child who, just like the two-year-old, you know, we talked about them having their own sense of self. Oh, my goodness. The uh, middle school and the high school child really has a sense of self, and their preferences are on full display now. And so they may rather play video games. In other words, the key word for teenagers is rather. They're going to have lots of rathers. And the Mm -hmm. question is, how do you help them? make peace with being at this particular spot, because whatever spot they're in, there's going to be some rathers that they'd rather be than this one. So what about this one? What do we do to help kids who are older, who have, you know, pretty well-developed sense of what they'd rather do, be at the table for this one? How much do we push them? Do we push them to be happy? Do we push them to eat? Do we push them to converse? Or we just ask them to be present?
1: I have to say that that's not a question that has an easy answer or even one or two answers because every teenager is going to come into it with their own issues either middle school or high school years, if you have a child that is reserved and moody and wants to be alone more often, I think that they need the space to do that. But that doesn't mean that a child of a certain age, we're talking middle school and high school kids, they can actually be said, you don't have to do A, B, or C. You don't have to come with us to the parade. You don't have to do this. But you do need to come out and shake hands and be polite. And you can even say, you have to answer two questions per person, you will know, because everyone's going to ask the same question: How's school? You know, are you, yeah. you know, if they're if they're in high school? Are you thinking about college or what sports do you play or what? Or something. I mean, they're all going to ask exactly the same thing. And I think that if you give parameters to this older child and say that's all you need to do, you may be surprised. They might find that they enjoy it more than they think being the center of somebody's discussion. But I think that at a certain age, we do have to. Ask children to be part of our social community, our family community at these holiday times.
0: I think we might wrap up our podcast coming back to our original theme, which is common ground. Common ground for teenagers. Asking them what they might get out of this event. If they tell us that it's just being there, then that's enough. If they tell us that they want to eat a lot and talk with people, that's fine too. And but asking them, you know, what do they hope to get out of this particular event that they'd rather be somewhere else at. Again, finding common ground turns out to be a great solution for most relationship events. So with that, I want to wish everyone a very happy Thanksgiving, and I hope that our holiday treat was helpful and puts everyone in good moods for a big gathering together.
1: I agree, Arthur. Happy Thanksgiving. And guess what? I'm glad we're wrapping this up because I think something's bubbling on the stove right now. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk Podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.